Muddy Roads from the David Grisman Bluegrass Experience. His latest CD is called Muddy Roads. David Grisman Bluegrass Experience will be in South Florida at the David Posnack Jewish Community Center on Saturday, March 4th. And I have David Grisman on the line. Hi, David. How you doing? All right. You know, every time I listen to Prairie Home Companion and I hear Chris Teeley, I think of you. Oh, wow. Well, that's a, I'll take that as a whopping compliment because Chris is, uh, he's the current uh, man of the hour on the mandolin. Well, have you met him before? Oh, yeah. I met him when he was eight years old. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm not going to say how old I was, but. Well, what, um, were, what yeah. were you doing at eight years old? Uh, I was, uh, playing with, uh, well, I was taking piano lessons. I hadn't discovered the mandolin when I was eight. I didn't, that didn't happen until I was around 15. Well, when people uh, say David Grisman, they think of mandolin. So how did you first become exposed to the mandolin? Well, I became exposed, uh, first through, uh, bluegrass music. I discovered bluegrass music and old time music. And fortunately, I had an amazing musician, folklorist, human being living five blocks away, a man named Ralph Rinsler, who uh, was uh, a mandolin player in the first uh, bluegrass band in New York City, the Greenbrier Boys. He was also a folklorist uh, who uh, discovered Doc Watson and uh, promoted Bill Monroe and a lot of traditional music and ultimately became the director of folk life at the Smithsonian and an amazing guy who turned me on to uh, just a whole universe of traditional music and as well as uh, being one of my early mandolin mentors. Actually, was uh, the banjo really got to me. It played in style of Earl Scruggs, but um, one of my uh, buddies already went out and got a banjo, and so I decided to become a mandolin player. So you were living in New York City? No, I was living in Passaic, New Jersey. You traveled to New York City? Yeah, we used to take the number 30 bus in and go to Sam Goody's or uh, Washington Square Park on Sundays. I ultimately, after I graduated high school, I went to NYU for four years downtown. To study what? Well, I was an English major. Okay. I was studying how to stay out of Vietnam. (laughs) And if I'm correct, one of your first recordings is what the Even Dozen Jug Band? Yeah, that was was my first uh, released recording, yes, in 1963. Was it tough Uh, becoming a mandolin player in a jug band? No, you know, it was fun. Uh, <laughs> I was, of course, trying to be a bluegrass mandolin player, which takes a couple of years anyway. But, um, I mean, mandolin playing came naturally to me, uh, at least more naturally than piano playing or, or in any other musical endeavors. So uh, when I was asked to join this band, went right there. Well, jug band music in the early 60s, I mean, that that was very popular at the time. Yeah, it was a coming thing. I mean, this was like kind of a folk music revival or explosion. And, of course, Greenwich Village was a, a big center of it. Every Sunday we'd go to Washington Square Park, and 
every Sunday afternoon there, folk musicians would play around the fountain, and there'd be all kinds of, there'd be bluegrass players, old-time traditional players, kind of political uh, folk singing, protest songs, and blues. A guy named Stefan Grossman, who you may be familiar with, he organized that band, and my friend John Sebastian was also going to NYU. I met him in the elevator of NYU. He was in that band, too, as well as Maria D'Amato, who later became Maria Muldor. And it was quite a, a pool of uh, young talent. Did you ever get your English degree? I did. I did. Uh, I never opened it up. I gave it to my mom, and I never... I. I never even saw it, but uh, I have done a lot of writing. I, I w- worked for a magazine called Frets in the 1980s and 90s and wrote 88 columns on mandolin playing. When you talk about bluegrass and mandolin player, who comes to mind, of course, is Bill Monroe, who's the father of bluegrass. Did you meet him? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, met him. I played with him. Uh, he would invite me on stage quite a number of times and you know he was my hero i had several heroes and he certainly was at the top of the list in fact i was for a while there early on i was pretty much dedicated playing just like him he has a reputation of being quite a taskmaster uh, was he intimidating to you not that much you know at first well see i kind of had an inside track because of uh, ralph rinsler became his manager and uh, a lot of my friends played in his band, uh, starting with uh, Bill Keith, who's revolutionized banjo playing back in the 60s. And I met Del McCurry, who I have continued a musical friendship for now 51 years. Later, a little later on, Peter Rowan and Richard Green played in his band. And, you know, I went on a few road trips, kind of was a disciple, really, of Bill Monroe, studied his music very carefully. You know, he he was always nice to me and very encouraging, but he did uh, teach me a big lesson, which is, I mean, he wanted people to play like him, but if you got too good at it, he would say, okay, you can play like me, now go get your own style. And that was kind of the best advice of all. I realized at a certain point, gee, what, what am I doing copying this guy. I mean, and fortunately, something else happened, emerged. I guess you're leading into this. How did you find your own voice? I guess I always had inside my head a concept of the sound I wanted to make. And then uh, I guess I studied pretty intensely Bill Monroe and Bobby Osborne, who was another bluegrass innovator, and Jesse McReynolds and Frank Wakefield, and in fact, uh, transcribed a lot of their solos. At some point, I noticed that all these guys wrote original tunes on the mandolin, so I figured that was part of the deal. So I I decided to write a tune, and I wrote my first tune. A couple of weeks after that, another tune just kind of popped out, I always liked lots of different kinds of music. You know, Duke Ellington famously said there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. And uh, 
so I, I, you know, I mean, before I discovered bluegrass, I was really, you know, uh, I was there listening to the birth of rock and roll and people like Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Buddy Holly and uh, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and then I discovered jazz in the early sixties and I got interested in that. I always kind of liked, uh, I just liked good music. So it, it, there were other things, even though I was crazy about bluegrass and studying, uh, in my own way, bluegrass mandolin, I, I realized the mandolin had, uh, was just a voice. I could play kind of anything if I could find the notes like the first dollar I ever earned playing the mandolin I was walking home from a friend's house carrying my mandolin and I walked by this house where they're having a party and they said hey can you play that and they were uh, an Italian wedding was going on and I said give me a half hour I ran home and I figured out somehow and from memory come back to Sorrento and went back and played it, and they gave me a dollar. <laughs> you know, I was always interested in uh, other influences were there from the start. And gradually, they when I started writing tunes, they came out in those tunes. You know, they were some of them started being a little different than bluegrass. I'm speaking with David Grisman. The David Grisman Bluegrass Experience performs in Davie at the David Posnick JCC Saturday, March 4th. Information, 954-434-0499. David, so you were there at the beginning of the folk revival in the 60s. Were you part of any controversy when you veered away from traditional folk or traditional bluegrass? Not really. Uh, Traditional folk music was kind of not mainstream, uh, you know, popular music by any means. I mean, the Kingston Trio actually kind of got my ears perked up. Would you consider uh, them traditional folk music? Well, no, I, I would. I didn't know what was traditional and what. You know, they're part of a tradition, but they were more of the popular end, mm-hmm. like Peter, Paul, and Mary. There were that stuff didn't interest. As soon as I heard, along with that kind of popular folk music. Pete Seeger, you know, he was kind of in the middle of it. He was popular, but he came out of a more traditional angle. But people like Ralph Rinsler and Mike Seeger, Pete's younger brother, and John Cohn were discovering and rediscovering a lot of traditional musicians that had recorded in the 20s and 30s who were still alive, and they would find these people. In New York, they formed a an organization called the Friends of Old Time Music, and they started promoting concerts by people like Mississippi, John Hurt, Clarence Ashley, Doc Boggs, who they all had rediscovered. And that's what really interested me, because this was a much more authentic folk music, you know, that was, it really came out of people's lives and experience before really the advent of certainly television and uh, records as we know them later on. You know, the first recordings were pretty much in the rough, I guess. They found these people 
like the famous Bristol sessions in 1927, you know, these were traditions that were passed down from, you know, by people's mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles, music that they played at, you know, local dances and just home entertainment. Uninfluenced by other music on the radio or television or, you know, and gradually that kind of got homogenized. But, uh, you know, bluegrass was probably the most traditional form of country music that came along in the 40s. And, uh, you know, I recognize that authenticity as well as the fact that it's a very virtuosic music. It appealed to uh, that part of my musical psyche that was excited by virtuosity. David Grisman is on the line. He, You are known as one of the best mandolin players. And you also introduced me to a, a whole new line of music when you got into jazz from France, the uh, the hot club music. Oh, the music. gypsy jazz. The yeah. gypsy jazz. Now, mandolin yeah. is not a gypsy jazz instrument, is it? Well, not really. I mean, I used to get, you know, in the miscellaneous instrument pole, you know. <laughs> but then uh, I started, there's been a progression of, I mean, the mandolin has... Uh, grown immensely in terms of the expansion of the technical uh, capabilities as well as the repertoire. And, you know, I mean, happy to have been a link in that chain. And today you have people like Chris Thiele and a lot of young kids that I've seen come along, you know, that are fabulous players interested in, in playing all kinds of music. There's a a tradition in Brazil called choro music that really started by a man named Jaco de Bandolim. And that's a whole genre of music that incorporates the mandolin. And, you know, in 1974, I started, uh, formed a band with a violin player named Richard Green, who was a friend of mine who had also played with Bill Monroe. And we started playing gigs together and neither one of us sang and we thought we'd make a go of it playing instrumental music but we knew we couldn't just play bluegrass instrumentals for 75 minutes so we started playing uh duke ellington tunes django stefan tunes just to put a lot of variety in that of course a few years after that i had the great opportunity after i formed my Quintet in 1975. In 1978, I had the opportunity to uh, work with Stefan Grappelli, who was Django Reinhardt's partner, and so firsthand got uh, a chance to work with one of the masters and, and creators of that of that music. And uh, like I said, uh, you know, when I discovered that music, I fell in love with that, and uh, I like all kinds of music. Even if the mandolin wasn't there, it was string music. Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti, pioneers of, of that, they influenced Django Reinhardt. All that kind of string jazz. You know, there was a great mandolin player named Dave Apollon, who I consider to be the first, if not jazz, world mandolin player. He was in vaudeville. He was a Russian immigrant who came over here and ended up in Las Vegas. But he was uh, an amazing mandolin virtuoso. And 
and then, of course, I met the great Jethro Burns, Homer and Jethro, who really was a jazz mandolin pioneer. He wasn't known primarily as a jazz mandolin player because uh, Homer and Jethro was a comedy act. But, you know, all these people kind of laid the groundwork for what I do. It sounds like, David Grisman, that you seek out and play with the best musicians in the world. Well, I've been fortunate. I certainly have sought them out to go hear them play, and uh, everyone I've got, all of the great ones that I've played with, I started out as being a fan and admirer. You know, the first time Stephanie Capelli came to San Francisco where I was living, I just went down to hear him, and I I gave him a copy of my first album, and uh, a couple of years after that, or a year or two, uh, I got offered a chance to tour with him. I've had a really charmed musical life, and it continues to... It, it continues. <laughs> David Grisman is coming to town with the David Grisman yeah. Bluegrass Experience. And, David, I have one more question, if you don't mind, yeah. because... Uh, through your record label, you also developed a relationship with Grateful Dead's Jerry Garcia, and you came out with a right. series of acoustic concerts. Uh, well, we had uh, we actually developed our our relationship started at a Bill Monroe concert or a show in 1964. That's when we met. About in New York City? No, that was in West Grove, Pennsylvania, at a place called Sunset Park. That every Sunday afternoon in, in the summer they had country music shows often bluegrass you know? well i know early versions of the grateful dead was a jug band and you were in a jug band was that what you right. had in common we had a lot in common we both were deep uh, young kids who were interested in traditional american music of all types including jug band bluegrass old-time music we liked the same styles of music and and met early on and kept in touch you know i actually got the grateful dead their first national publicity before they were even the grateful dead i went out to california the for the first time in 1965 summer of 65 and stayed at a house in palo alto where several of those guys were living and they had just formed a band and they were called the warlocks and uh when i got back to New York, I was uh, working for a guy named Israel G. Young, who uh, had a, a place well-known in the folk music scenes called the Folklore Center. And he also wrote a uh, monthly column for Sing Out magazine called Frets and Frails. And if you go back to sometime in the fall of 65, you'll see that Dave Grisman just came back from California and he found this band called the, the Warlocks that are combining bluegrass and rock and roll, essentially. So I've known all those guys. And in, in 1969, I was in San Francisco on a visit and heard that the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane were playing a softball game. Fairfax, California, went out to say hi to Jerry, and he asked me if I could play on uh, a record they were making, which turned out to be American Beauty. We kept up our relationship all through the years. I moved out to California in late 69, and we formed a bluegrass band in, uh, in 1973 called Olden in the Way. That lasted for about a year, and then we played some... He, he actually was in the early version of the band I formed with Richard Green called the Great American Music Band. 
And of course, later on, we got together in the early 90s and uh, did a lot of recording and uh, released, oh, I don't know, five or six CDs of Jerry and myself. Up until he did his last session in my studio, I think two weeks before he passed away. David Grisman is on the line, and David actually is going to be in town with the David Grisman Bluegrass Experience. With yeah, all... I should mention the other guys in the band. Sure. Keith Little is an amazing singer and banjo player. He also plays all the instruments, and uh, he's been in the band since it started. Chad Manning is a great fiddle player. He plays in that band. He also plays in my sextet. And my youngest son, Samson, is our bass player. He's been playing in that band since he was about 11 years old. Is he in the band because he's good or because he's your son? Absolutely. <laughs> he's, a, he's not only in my band, he plays now with Leanne Womack, and he plays with uh, Brian Sutton. He does sessions. He's living in Nashville. He just turned 27. He's married, and uh, he's a professional bass player, a very good bass player. I, you know. What kind of advice, uh, since you had a career in music, what kind of advice did you have for your son? Stay out of music. <laughs> well, could... <laughs> Don't give up your day job. No, <laughs> no. you know, my oldest son, Monroe, is, is a professional rock musician. And my daughter, who's a filmmaker, Jillian, uh, even she, uh, she used to play washtub bass. She's a director of production for uh, George Lucas's Edutopia, mm -hmm. his educational branch. They've all gone after uh, creative endeavors, and it's often hard to, uh, you know, earn a living doing something creative. But um, so I never really encouraged that. I, I mean, I did in encourage attain. Uh, a level of proficiency with whatever they were doing and uh, encourage that, but earning a living, hard road to go, but they're all doing really well. I have one more question for you, David. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Muddy Roads, I'm going to play one more song from Muddy Roads, probably the, yes. uh, and it's the uh, Bill Monroe tune, Walking Boss? Well, it's not a Bill Monroe tune. Actually, uh, Jerry Garcia and I recorded that on our first uh, CD together, and but we learned it from... Uh, Clarence Ashley, who my mentor, Ralph Rinsler, rediscovered, Clarence Ashley and Doc Watson. In fact, the whole Muddy Road CD is based on this repertoire of Clarence Ashley and Doc Watson as recorded on Folkways Records back around 1960. Clarence Ashley had made recordings in the 20s, some fabulous recordings. Uh, he was a banjo player and a guitar player, and... Ralph rediscovered him, well, around 1960, and uh, went down to Shones, Tennessee, to record him. And he had a neighbor named uh, Arthel Watson, Doc Watson, who made his first recordings on those uh, sessions. And uh, I got to know Doc when they brought them up to New York to play concerts. And then ultimately, uh, Ralph became Doc's manager and promoter and he, when he started his solo career. In fact, Doc Watson was the first uh, professional musician to ever invite me on a stage when I was 17 years old. But, uh, that's how do you, great you, music. You've been playing these tunes, these tunes for 50 years now. How do you keep them fresh and exciting? 
Well, they are fresh and exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're great tunes, and I don't play them every day. Uh, <laughs> you know, Jerry and I, when Jerry Garcia and I got together, we would just, I had a studio in my day, and he'd just come over, and we just record everything we could think of, this tune, that tune, and, and a lot of them, uh, we were familiar with these recordings. They're really great if... Uh, Anyone listening wants to check it out on uh, Folkways, Old Time Music at Clarence Ashley's. All the tunes on the Muddy Road CD are, are from that uh, repertoire. It's kind of my tribute to to the, those musicians and Ralph Rinsler himself. I mean, you know, I think great music is timeless. And, you know, you can put your own spin on something. Bill Monroe taught me a long time ago, you just didn't have to copy something. I mean, it was good to as a learning tool, but then you can put your own spin on it. I try to maintain the integrity of that material. Uh, and I think, you know, hey, if you're dedicated to something and have uh, some ability with it and you nurture that and, and, you know, practice and listen to a lot of incredible music. And now there's more old music available for those that want to search it out than ever before. When I started getting interested in this, these were 78 records that were long out of print. And, you know, we used to trade tapes of them. But now you can, you can find the complete recordings of, Charlie Poole and the North Carolina Ramblers, complete recordings of Benny Goodman, complete recordings of the Stanley Brothers, complete recordings of you name it. I'm trying to catch up on a lot of this stuff that I, I haven't heard either ever or in a long time. I've got almost 20,000 songs on my iPhone, and I get on a plane and I just put it on shuffle. David Grisman, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us.